A very good morning to you. Great to see you all here this morning. My name's Neil, and alongside my wonderful wife, Kate, we serve this wonderful community here, the South West London Vineyard, this family, uh, this Christian family of believers. Over the past few weeks, we've been doing a series on the things that we've, we value, not only here at South West London Vineyard, but also across the wider uh, vineyard family of churches of which we are a part. And as we end our series ahead of uh, six weeks of summer, which Kate's talked about, which starts next week, we wanted to take a look at some of the ways in which, I don't really know how to describe this, sort of some of the ways in which we tackle some of the mystery of our faith and how we understand some of that stuff that the Bible teaches, especially the things that sort of sometimes seem to be at odds with one another. And so this morning we're going to take a look at another fundamental part of Vineyard DNA by looking at what uh, might rather clumsily be called um, either or or both and. Either or or both and. When you look at the history of the church, the church always seemed to get itself in a pickle when it sort of rejected what you might call both and thinking in favor of either or thinking. Um, now, if you're anything like me, and many of us, we, we like, we tend to like definitive answers. We, we tend to like things to be absolute. We like things to be one thing or another. And uh, because of that, we can often find holding things in tension, you know, other ways of describing it as living in the gray, uh, we can find that rather troubling or unsettling. Now, spoiler alert for those of you who are new to this Christianity thing, uh, there is a lot of mystery uh, to both God and to the Christian faith, like a lot. Uh, you'll encounter many, many, many things on your journey of faith, of faith that don't sit neatly or comfortably kind of in, in black and white. Uh, and the early church, they wrestled with this a lot. And so they had to grapple with really, really difficult questions like, uh, who is God? You know, is God uh, three? You know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or, or is God one? Like, which, which is it? Or, you know, surely it has, to be, it has to be one or the other. Or who is Jesus? Is, is Jesus a man? Or is Jesus God? Uh, which is it? Just tell me which one it is, and that will be straightforward for me. Or um, should we baptize infants? Or is adult baptism okay? Or, and while we're on the subject of baptism, should we use just a little bit of water? Or do we have to use kind of whole buckets of water. Um, which one is it? You know, and the church went to war over the quantity of water that was to be used. Uh, so many of the controversies in the church historically have been a result of the church adopting this sort of either-or thinking rather than both-and thinking. Time and time again, we, we try to constrain God and we try to get him to fit into our way of thinking and uh, because our brains find it hard to compute, uh, we tend to require a definitive answer, something concrete, something absolute, something either this or that. 
But part of the wonderful mystery of God is that God is not limited to our ways of thinking and God need be neither one thing nor another. God is very much both and. Uh, from beginning to end, this book, the Bible, the scriptures, uh, is a both and book. It's both divine inspiration and human authorship. Uh, the kingdom, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the kingdom of God is both and. It is both the now and the not yet. Creation itself is both and. Both very good and fallen. Uh, the, even the Ten Commandments are both and. You know, the first four uh, concern our responsibility to God and the last six our responsibility to one another. You think about the Old Testament prophets. Uh, time and time again, the prophets in the Old Testament, they would call people to account. They weren't worried about calling people to accountability. They would call people to account for what you might call like their vertical sins or their sin against God, you know, the way that they were essentially in violation against the first uh, set of the Ten Commandments. Uh, but over and over again, they also pe called people to account for their, what you might call their horizontal sin, their sin against one another, or the way people were violating the second set of commandments. Prophet Elijah's perfect example. Um, we see Elijah, he has a great confrontation, two great confrontations in fact, uh, one very famously on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. What he does, he confronts the prophets of Baal, you remember that mountain thing and the water and the, the fire. Uh, he confronts the prophets of Baal and he is basically confronting their sin against God, their idolatry, their kind of vertical sin. And then just a couple of chapters later in, in 1 Kings 21, Elijah goes off to Jezreel and he goes off to confront Ahab, who's the king. And he wants to confront the king, first of all, for stealing a field from a chap called Naboth uh, and then murdering him. So Elijah confronts both idolatry against God and injustice against others. And if you read the Old Testament, you just see that kind of pattern being repeated all over the place. The prophets con confronting idolatry on the one hand and injustice on the other. We see it in that famous verse that we're all familiar with in Micah chapter 6, where it says in verse 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Towards people, we are to act justly and to love mercy. To, towards God, we are to walk humbly. Not either or, but both and. And Jesus himself, he, uh, he taught about the importance of this uh, both and thinking, especially you know, when he talks about the two great commandments. Let's have a look at this uh, very familiar passage for us here in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. It says this, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, asked, uh, tested Jesus with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? See, he's pushing for an either or. Which one is it? Tell me what's the answer. Which one? And then I'll probably go and do it. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the Pharisee you know, is probably thinking, great, I've got an answer. 
Jesus could have stopped there. He could have said that, you know, we just have one single duty in this world, love and serve God. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus goes on to say in verse 39, and the second is like it. And the chap's like, I didn't ask for two. I was like, which one is it? Now you're giving me two. Now I'm getting confused. Jesus says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, you know, it means we can't say, well, I have wonderful, you know, wonderful prayer times with God. I go to church every week. I'm generous with my money. I sing my heart out during worship. You know, that's it. Job done. It doesn't matter what else I do. There are two great commandments, not just one. Followers of Jesus are called to both love and serve God and love and serve one another, uh, both and. And just to unpack this a little bit further, I, I just want to spend uh, a little bit of time, just a really brief reflection, if you like, um, on, on two of the great parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Very familiar parables to all of you, I'm sure. And they are, they are the, the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of the good Samaritan. And these two great parables of Jesus, probably uh, the two greatest parables of Jesus, are in, in kind of many ways sort of a perfect example. They're perfect examples of this both and thinking of the Bible. And in this case, it's sort of, I can't really describe it. It's, it's sort of around the both and thinking of evangelism, for want of a better expression, on the one hand, and, and social justice on the other. Now, neither of those are quite right, but you kind of get the gist. So I just want to compare these two uh, parables quickly. Uh, let's start in Luke chapter 15. In Luke chapter 15, we read this, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, when we think of the prodigal son, we might say, we might conclude, you know, that he was a, a victim, if you like, of his own sin. Uh, you could argue that the reason that he's got into the state that he's in was in no small part because of his own choices. It was down to his own choices. It was down to his own actions. It was down to his own decisions. By uh, running away from home, what he's done is essentially hurting himself, squandering, he's squandering this father's generous gift. And then in Luke 10, uh, verse 30, we read um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says this, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So what's happened to this man? This man, on the other hand, is a victim of the sins of others. This man, you know, is lying in a ditch on the side of the road. He was the one who was sinned against. As far as we know, he's just going about his business when he is violently attacked, violently sinned against by others through no fault of his own. 
we can be victims of our own sin, you know, as a result of our own choices, our own decisions, our own actions, but we can also be victims of the sins of others as a result of their choices, their actions. Truth be told, it's very often a combination of both. But when we're looking to try and understand uh, what's brought someone we know, you know we do that. We look at someone we know and we look at their situation and their circumstance. We try to work out what it is that got them in this mess, what it is that caused this. Uh, when we look at that, it's, so we look at someone who's kind of got to this difficult place that they find themselves. It can be so easy for us to lean towards either-or thinking. It's much cleaner for us to say, you know, if we, if we can say, well, you know, they are where they are, they've got to where they've got to, it's their own fault, they've brought it on themselves. It's to do with some kind of catastrophic character failure or a failure in their personal morals. Or it's just as easy to say, no, 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 they're where they are um, because of what someone did to them or because, you know, I don't know, society has failed them and uh, so, you know, the root causes, they're not personal choices, they're more social, societal, structural. The Bible tells us there's absolutely a personal dimension to the state, the condition that we find ourselves in, absolutely. But the Bible also clearly sets out that there are also external factors at play when we find, ourself, find ourselves in a state. We can find ourselves in trouble because of our own sin, we can find ourselves in trouble because we've been sinned against. And we can find ourselves in trouble because of both. And the parable of the prodigal son is, is a pretty good illustration of personal sin, personal choices. And the parable of the good Samaritan is a pretty good illustration of social sin, the choices and actions of others. But in both parables, we find that God's love is preeminent. We find that there's redemption, God's redemption in both. In the prodigal son, uh, we see God's love for the lost. Here's what it says in uh, Luke 15 verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Here we have this incredibly beautiful picture of God as the one who waits, this patient, loving uh, God who's compassionate, who wants to be compassionate, who runs towards us, who embraces us, who loves us, cherishes us, holds us. Here's this young chap who is probably lost because of his own choices, his own actions, his own decisions, his own sin. And you know, we've all been there. As it says in Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And so we wander. We wander away from God. We, we so easily find ourselves in a distant land. It's so easy for us to feel far from God. It can be so easy to just drift away from God by doing a whole bunch of kind of pretty good things. But God is so loving, God is so patient, God is so kind, God just waits like the father and the prodigal son. He longs for us to turn around. He longs for us to turn back towards all that God has for us. And when we do, God isn't there to scold us. God runs towards us with open arms. God scoops up 
and loves the lost. God showers us with his affection. God loves the lost. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see that God loves the least. Have a look at uh, Luke 10, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went with him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any ex extra expense you may have. Throughout, pe uh, throughout history, people have seen Jesus as the Samaritan in the story. Jesus comes to us where we are. Jesus takes pity on us. Jesus bandages us up. Jesus brings us to a place where we can be cared for and provided for. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see God's love reaching out to the least. God's heart is always turned towards those who are hurting. God's heart is always turned towards those who have been sinned against. God's heart is always turned towards those who are victims of others' abuse. God loves the, the lost and God loves the least. As I said, in both parables, there is both redemption and there is salvation. Uh, in the parable of the prodigal son, we see that the son is rescued by forgiveness. Have a look at Luke chapter 15, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. God always forgives. God always forgives. Just that in itself is such an extraordinary truth. Just allow the Spirit of God to minister that truth to your spirit this morning. God always forgives. The fact that God will separate us from our sin to redeem us and not only that, he separates out our sin from us and then places that sin on his son, Jesus Christ, and does that so that we can go free. It is an extraordinary truth. That verse I quoted to you from Isaiah 56, the end of it says this. It starts off by saying, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has gone our own way. We have turned to our own way. And then it says this, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The message translation of that last part of the verse is this, and God has piled all of our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. On him. No matter what we've done, no matter why we did it, God always forgives. The prodigal son is an example of someone being rescued by forgiveness. And the parable of the Good Samaritan, the man left in a ditch on the road, is an example of someone who's rescued by charity and justice. Uh, you see, in both parables alongside this, do you notice there's, there's always there's, there's somebody in both parables who doesn't quite approve, if you like, of this or both and thinking of Jesus? 
doesn't sit very comfortably for them. There's somebody in both parables who's resistant to the idea of God's love and God's rescue. Uh, in the prodigal son, um, it's the older brother who's angry that the father is so welcoming to the lost brother. You know, the, the older brother, you can almost hear him saying, you know, well, he's made his bed, now let him lie in it. You know, make him pay, don't take him back. He's taken all the money. And the older brother might be an example of those who think that God shouldn't give a chance. You know, a second or a third or a fourth or an umpteenth chance to everyone. Some people think people don't deserve more than one chance. And so some are resistant, if you like. Um, again, I don't know how to phrase this, but to the invitation of evangelism. Some refuse the call of evangelism. You know, it doesn't matter how badly we've messed up. It doesn't matter um, how kind of what state we've got ourselves into. We can always come back to Christ. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, there's also opposition. There's also resistance. Um, there's a priest and a Levite, religious leaders. Uh, um, and it says that they took a wide berth around the man lying in the road. They just didn't want to see him. And some of us refuse the invitation or the call of social justice. You know, there are a whole bunch of people who are religious, churchgoers, but who say that the people lying in the road, yeah, that's not my business. That's not my concern. That's not the business of Christianity. I'm too busy with religion. I'm too busy with worship and taking the Lord's Supper and praying. But Jesus says it is our issue. Loving people in both body and soul is our issue. Rescuing both the lost and rescuing the least is what we as followers of Jesus are about. Loving people who are both victims of their own sin and loving people who are victims of other people's sins, that is who the church has been called to be, both and and just to finish with, I just want to highlight a couple of ways uh, that both and thinking has impacted this church, Southwest London Vineyard, over the past 35 years. You know, what are some of the things, and I'm just going to do a couple, um, that we've always tried to learn to hold intention, uh, sometimes more successfully than others. Uh, and one of the things that we love about this church is that as a church, we see ourselves as both evangelical and what that means is kind of biblically, you know, grounded as best we possibly can, submitted to the authority of the scriptures, recognizing that the scriptures in parts are incredibly challenging, but not throwing out the baby with the bathwater and instead committing to working through the challenges of the scriptures. Um, essentially, you know, orthodox, for want of a better word, kosher. Uh, Yet at the same time, our expectation, in our expectation and in our practice, we love the fact that we're also charismatic, both evangelical and charismatic. What that means, charismatic, just means empowered and equipped and filled by the Holy Spirit. And so we see the Holy Spirit as the experience of the Trinity, and that could be through all kinds of different things, whether that's through, the he whether that's through healing or the prophetic or the way that we operate in spiritual gifts or the way we do social justice or just through equipping the saints through works of service. As a church, as a movement, we are uh, empowered evangelicals is how we think of ourselves. And not only are we passionate about the Scriptures, 
and wrestling and grappling with them, and more of that's come out. I, I, feel, a, I feel a series coming on um, tackling the Old Testament. I'm just feeling that maybe we need to grapple with, you know, all the, you know, all the grim bits of the Old Testament. Because I, I get the sense, this is completely off-piste, I get the sense that we're in danger of, um, you know, as, as followers of Jesus, of, um, let me just find, let me just find it, of um, tearing out this bit. See that bit? In favor of this bit. And this bit is an absolute nightmare, the truth be told. We just need to be honest about it. It is an absolute minefield. This is lovely. Jesus, he's awesome. God in the Old Testament, bit of a megalomaniac, a little bit unpredictable, not quite sure what I think about him. If we're honest, come on. So I feel that series coming on, but you'll have to wait for that because it's not happening over the summer, maybe the new year, once I've read enough of the Old Testament to work out what I actually think about it. Anyway, we'll take that off the tape. Um, not only are we committed and passionate about the Scriptures, passionate about orthodoxy and passionate about the Holy Spirit, we're also people who are passionate about um, the kingdom of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You know, um, Here's another one of those things that we try and hold in tension, the now and the not yet of the kingdom. You know, we live and embrace this tension, this both and thinking, you know, the now, and go back and listen to it if you don't know what I'm talking about, but the, the inaugurated eschatology of the coming of Christ, the breakthrough of Jesus. You know, and in, just in case you weren't aware of it, you know, things changed when Jesus came. You know, Jesus died for our sins. That's pretty now. And he gave us freedom and abundant life. You know, that's pretty now too. And we see that, you know, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can be free now. That's the now of the kingdom of God. But um, there's also a not yet. We live in the tension of the not yet of the kingdom. You know, we're yet to see, I know it's difficult to believe when you look up here, but we're yet to see the resurrection body. <laughs> Corinthians says, I know. I know. Control yourselves. Uh, Corinthians says, For the last trumpet will sound, and in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised incorruptible and will all be changed. To which most of us, you know, sigh, it's a great sigh of relief. But what about healing, you know, when we don't see it? Deliverance, when we don't see it? You know, these are just things that we need to get honest about. We just need to be real about as a family of churches. But what about infertility? What about wayward kids? Kids that you've taught and trained in the scriptures and then hit a stage in their life and just go off the rails, whatever that means. What about when we lose our jobs or we're experiencing ongoing conflict and on and on and on it goes. All of these things are examples of the not yet of the kingdom. But, you know, whether we see healings in the now or whether our healing is in the future, you know, the not yet, whether our deliverance is in the now, or whether we will have to wait longer for the situation or the circumstance to change. Whether we're experiencing the now or the not yet of the kingdom with those things. And always remember John chapter 10. Always remember John chapter 10. Jesus has come that you might have life and have it to the full. 
that's something that we can all have right now. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what state of decay our bodies are in, he has come that we might have life and that we might have life right now. And with this, as I say, we just need to be honest and upfront. You know, we have to acknowledge the both and. Sometimes we get to see healing. But we've also seen so many people who haven't been healed. And we've had to go through and work through the grief and the loss and the sadness of that. And there's another series in the pipeline around how we handle grief. There's so much loss, so much grief that we experience. Not just in death, but there's so many, very many, many deaths that so many of us experience on a regular basis. So sometimes we get to see healing and we've seen, um, sadly, so many people not healed. Sometimes we get to see deliverance. Um, and then we've seen situations for people that we know and love and their circumstances, their situations have never changed. But in it all, uh, whether we are healed or not, delivered or not, Jesus has come that we might have life in the midst of all of the challenge that we're facing. Abundant life. And that's for every single one of us here this morning. Abundant life in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you haven't worked out who this wonderful person called Jesus is, um, please talk to the person who brought you or come and find us. Get somebody to talk to you about their experiencing experience of following Jesus. We'd love to pray for you at the end. Come along to the well-being course. You know, this uh, September, as Kate talked about, October. You know, or the next Alpha course being started probably in uh, the new year. And find out what it is we're talking about when we say that abundant life can be yours. And that could be if you don't know Jesus, or it could be if you do know Jesus, but you don't know abundant life. There's so much mystery about the Christian faith. There is so much mystery about the God of the Christian faith. But as a church, as we press into all that the Lord has for us as a community of faith, let's not limit God. Let's not limit the kingdom. Let's not limit ourselves to an either-or approach to the way that we think about things. Instead, with all of its challenges, and I recognize that there are many challenges, with all of the discomfort and the disquiet that it may bring, let's always be a people who press into the both and of the kingdom of God. And that is the end. We're now going to celebrate the Lord's Supper.